0: So I'm really pleased and delighted that we have him here with us this evening. I'm sure we're all going to learn a lot, and I'm going to turn it over to Chris now. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you for that fun introduction. <laughs> um, I should probably uh, also say that Ruth uh, wrote a book in 2010 on change processes in mindfulness and acceptance-based treatment, and she has a chapter in there on self-compassion, and with when- <laughs> When I read that, I thought, whoa, she's she's onto something here because I really hadn't put the two together quite so well as, as Ruth did back in 2010. So she's definitely a pioneer in this area as well. And um, I'm also delighted to be and really honored to be invited by the Oxford Mindfulness Center um, just because it's such a, you know, uh, you know, probably the prominent, most prominent mindfulness center in the world, but also Willem Kaiken, who um, was one of the first people to find empirical evidence for self-compassion as being an important causal factor in the effectiveness of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to decrease depression. So I just really feel a ton of gratitude to uh, Ruth and Willem and to the Oxford Mindfulness Center for inviting me. And frankly, for everybody calling in right now from around the world. I hope to make it worth your while. We have uh, maybe another 45 minutes or so. And in this time, I'd like to review the theory and research on self-compassion. In particular, I'd like to show how mindfulness and self-compassion are related. I like to say BFF, you know, best friends forever. I'd like to do a couple short experiential uh, self-compassion practices so that you can feel it in your body. And also if possible, provide some general guidelines for how to integrate self-compassion into your life and into your meditation practice. Um, Maybe for starters, I should say a few words of how I got interested in um, self-compassion. Many of you have probably heard this story already. As Ruth said, you know, I learned about mindfulness when I was 25. You know, now I'm 68. You know, I, I thought for sure I'd be enlightened by now, <laughs> which is as good a reason as any to um, practice self-compassion. You know, but um, uh, it was after I went to India that I went to graduate school, and I graduated in '84. And I had written a dissertation on anxiety disorders and I had gotten special training in anxiety disorders. Um, But for the next 20 years, I suffered from an anxiety disorder which nothing that I learned, including mindfulness meditation, could touch, and that was public speaking anxiety. The chances of me being able to talk to you all right now, 20 years ago, is just about zero. Once I was trying to give a talk and to some therapists and I stood at the podium and I couldn't say a word you know until someone in the back of the room yells take a breath <laughs> which only made me feel worse of course um but um and but then eventually I learned loving kindness meditation and uh for all these years decades I just didn't like loving kindness meditation I actually started originally with Transcendental Meditation and they their position is that you don't really want your object of your meditation to have meaning, you know? Meaningless syllable was like a positive thing. And anyway, I, I really liked spacious awareness. So to say words to myself over and over again, just felt just not right, you know? But uh, Sharon Salzberg basically suggested to me once when I was in a dither at Um, on a meditation retreat, she she said, basically, why don't you just sit on your cushion and love yourself, you know, like, just love yourself. I think she could tell I wasn't loving myself properly, you know, so I did that. And my, I just, my mind cleared, I became really quite mindful by saying nice things to myself. And so that really turned the corner for me. I realized, whoa, this is, this is different, you know? So the thing that i had been basically avoiding for decades was, was the medicine that I really needed. And then uh, there was a big conference at Harvard Medical School very shortly after that, four months after that. And for the first time in my life, I was not afraid to speak. In fact, I had a certain joy of speaking because when I got up in front of the audience, there was a a voice, a loving voice in the back of my head, not the usual critical one or shaming one, but a beautiful voice that was saying, oh, may you be safe, may you be peaceful, you may be happy. And immediately I felt so much love for the audience. So anyhow, this, this was a watershed moment for me. This was 2006. Um shortly after that book, uh, that, the first book that Ruth held up, um, shortly after that was published. So I really didn't know anything about self-compassion when that book was published. Um, but anyhow, that, since that changed my life, um, after that in 2008, I met Kristen Neff. And in 2010, we started to uh, put together the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which has now been taught to probably 130,000 people around the world. And... It's really quite astonishing, the interest in self-compassion. Um, when, um, when Ruth wrote her chapter on self-compassion as a mechanism of change in psychotherapy in 2010, there were, there were just a f- probably less than 100 articles, maybe 150 articles on the subject. And now there are at least 4,000 and new articles are coming out on self-compassion in the academic literature. Um, every week, like three or four articles every week. So people are on to this. It's, it's a pretty exciting ride, I can, I can tell you that. Um, but uh, one of the main questions that people ask is what is the relationship of mindfulness to self-compassion? And so what I like to say is that when mindfulness is in full bloom and we experience suffering, we are naturally self compassionate you know that quality of friendliness and warmth is omnidirectional it goes toward ourselves it goes toward our experience even when we're suffering when mindfulness is in full bloom but what usually happens when we experience suffering our mindfulness starts to go out the window in other words we we turn away in fear or disgust or anger, you know, and we're not, and it kind of takes hold of us. So what does it take then to remain mindful? So I think that's where self-compassion c- comes in. And so when we're, when we're in the midst of intense and disturbing emotions, we, one of the main things I actually learned from that experience of public speaking anxiety is that sometimes we have to hold ourselves before we can hold the experience. So I was trying to make room for anxiety. But first, what I discovered after learning loving kindness meditation is that sometimes you just have to hold yourself. You just have to love yourself for the system to calm down and to be able then to see and to hold difficult experience. So, so although Mindfulness and compassion are really identical at the absolute level. At the relative level, there are some distinctions which are really helpful for practitioners. So we like to say that mindfulness is loving awareness of moment-to-moment experience, whereas self-compassion is loving awareness of the experiencer. Mindfulness asks the question, what do I know? Or what am I experiencing? Self-compassion asks the question, what do I need? What do I need? You know, mindfulness regulates emotion through attention and uh, self-compassion regulates emotion through um, care and connection. It's kind of a different mechanism. Though, although the two are very related, there's a small difference, you know? So, um, but in my mind, the, the really essential reason why mindfulness always has, has to be a part of self-compassion, and um, it's also a component of Kristen's definition of self-compassion, but there's a central paradox in self-compassion which really comes down to mindfulness. And that is, the central paradox is when we suffer uh we practice not and you could say mindfulness or self-compassion we practice not to feel better but because we feel bad and this is the difference that makes a difference if we use self-compassion um as a way of reducing our, you know, our anxiety, for example, or negative experience or manipulating it in any way. It's in the service of resistance and it doesn't work. So what would it be like to just be with our experience, open to our experience, in many, many, many ways, allowing the heart to break such that compassion naturally flows in? This is really what we're about. And if we don't have a foundation in mindfulness, that's really hard to do. It's really hard to be with difficult experience and not try to manipulate it. Mindfulness teaches us how to open to our experience. So this is really key. Um, Many people ask what... Yeah, like for example, after this talk, maybe you'll have dinner with somebody if you haven't already and, and they say, okay, well, what is self-compassion? And I think the closest, the best way to answer that question is to just take a moment, let's do a little reflection exercise. <clears throat> and that is when somebody you love is suffering, maybe they failed, they feel inadequate, how do you treat that person just think for a moment what what do you say what do you do what's your tone of voice how does it feel inside just to think about this Okay, and then question number two is, when you suffer, when you fail, when you feel inadequate, you know, like maybe you wanted to get a job, you didn't get it. Maybe your child had trouble in school and you're being called in for a conference. Maybe a friend is refusing to talk to you. How how do you react to yourself? How do you treat yourself? What um, words go through your mind? What is the tone? What's your posture? So inevitably what we find is there's a difference, right? And the difference is often we're less patient with ourselves. With ourselves, we kind of get into threat mode. With um, people, other people, we get into care mode you know, I once heard the Dalai Lama say, the reason why compassion for others works is because it's not you. <laughs> well, the problem is, is the closer we get to somebody else, the less kind we are to them. It's almost like the closeness to ourselves. You know, how do we treat our children and our best friends and our nearest and dearest? Probably not as well as somebody with it, with whom there's a little space between us, you know? so. We need this space. Mindfulness gives us this space, but because we don't have this kind of space with ourselves, we're often pretty harsh with ourselves. Um, The research is quite clear that the vast majority of us are more compassionate toward others than toward ourselves. So what is self-compassion? An informal definition of self-compassion is simply that, which is treating ourselves with the same kindness and understanding as we treat somebody else. And uh, that is to say, a good friend, you know. And um, um, so this is a really, this is an operational definition, actually, because if you ever find yourself really stuck and beating up on yourself or feeling just really down, if you just stop for a minute and you say, ah, how would I treat a friend who is feeling just like, I do, or just is going through what I'm going through, how would I treat a friend? And then do that for yourself. So self-compassion is a U-turn. It's a U-turn, okay? Let me give you a direct experience of this, actually. Um, uh, Dr. Keltner at the um, Greater Good Science Center says that there are basically three universal expressions of compassion that people can recognize anywhere in the world. One is a warm gaze. Uh, In other words, you can see in a person's eyes when they're being compassionate with you. Another is a soothing touch. You know, it's amazing the skin can tell the difference between, can really sense the intention of somebody else, you know? So, warm gaze, soothing touch, and uh, gentle vocalizations, the tone of the voice. So, what I'd like to do now is to give you a taste of self compassion, just a brief reflection, if you don't mind. If you close your eyes and um, give yourself the gift of seeing in your mind's eye the eyes of a being who is deeply loving and maybe even deeply loving toward you. And it could be your your dog, could be a child, but just see those eyes. And notice how it feels in your body to bathe in this gaze. So this is the U-turn. This is a self-compassion practice. And now see if you can put a hand someplace on your body which is genuinely soothing. So for example, maybe on your cheek, or maybe one hand on your cheek and one on your chest. Maybe even can lean your head into your hand or gently stroke your chest. And take a moment to notice what that feels like as well. Okay, you can do this for yourself anytime, night or day. You can do it even during meditation when you need it. And now, just take a, just um, give yourself the following uh, blessing. And that is, if somebody were to walk into your room right now, And were to whisper into your ear something that you need to hear. And when you hear it, you say, Oh, thank you, thank you. What would you hear right now? What would what words would be spoken to you right now? You know, maybe like, I love you, I'm here for you, I believe in you, I trust you. What what words would be just wonderful to hear right now. Okay, and just take a moment and allow yourself to bathe in those words, you know. Just allow those words to flow through your being. Noticing what happens in your body as you take it in. Okay, and now let's do all three together. See if you can see those eyes. See if you can give yourself some soothing or supportive touch. And say those words to yourself. And notice what it's like inside your body right now, what is in your, how you feel in your emotional heart, how you feel in your body. It's quite likely that you have shifted your physiology actually to a state of care. You have activated the intention or the motivation, the motive as Paul Gilbert says in Darby, motivation of compassion, which is often comes along with a physiology of care. Right? So this is self-compassion. This is a U-turn. Now, some people, some people really, really don't like the term self-compassion and I get it because I don't either. There's gotta be a better way of talking about this. Um, I was, uh, Kristen and I were um, talking with a monk in, in Scotland who said, Well, you don't have to call it self-compassion, just call it inner compassion. And we thought, oh, that's great, you know? It kind of makes sense, you know? Compassion is inner and outer. Actually, the Buddha, when he was speaking about this, he never even said it was self or other, he just said it was directions. That's amazing, you know? So the direction, so we don't need to call it self-compassion, but the the term self-compassion has two problems. The first problem is self, And it makes people think of selfishness and reification of the self, which is the source of most of our suffering. And the second is compassion. And that makes people think of weakness and only of nurturing, you know, and not sometimes the need to be tough and fierce. You know, there's fierce compassion too, right? So these ideas that uh, self-compassion is selfish or weak, are what we call myths, and there are numerous myths about self-compassion. One is that it will make us weak, and in fact, we've found from the literature, you know, these four thousand articles on self-compassion, they basically say one thing, and that's emotional resilience. People who are self-compassionate, they just cope better. They res- they bounce back faster from trauma. Self-compassion is a powerful um, buffer between but uh, between trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so it's not weak, it's strong, you know, and it's also not selfish. People who are high in self, who cultivate self-compassion inevitably become more compassionate toward others. This is what I discovered at that conference myself. Some people worry they'll become lazy and self-indulgent, but actually, self-compassionate people they take better care of themselves. They're more likely to exercise. They're more likely to eat well. They go to the doctor when they're sick. But one of the main ones that people oh, and another concern is self-pity, like rumination. You know, and a lot of the beautiful work coming out of um, out of Oxford shows that actually, self-compassionate people ruminate less. They feel more like part of humanity and less centered on their thoughts. But one of the main concerns is motivation. That if I were self-compassionate, I will lose motivation. I just say, I'll just be like this the rest of my life, you know? (laughs) But what we find is that people who are high in self-compassion are actually more motivated to achieve their goals, and their goals are just as high as others. But they're more motivated because they're motivating themselves with kindness. So imagine you have like an athletic coach, one who's critical all the time, and one who says, you know, I believe in you, you got what it takes, you can do this. Which one is gonna help you achieve your goals? Definitely the one who motivates with encouragement rather than criticism. So people who are high in self-compassion are frankly more motivated. So there's lots of good reasons to practice self-compassion. You know, self-compassion is across the board. Is associated with increases in well-being, decreases in anxiety, depression, stress, shame, improved physical health, improved immune functioning, better relationships. Goes on and on. So most of you are probably familiar with Kristin Neff's um, definition of self-compassion: the three components—mindfulness versus overidentification, common humanity versus isolation, and um, kindness versus self-criticism. But what I'm just really loving now is that she has a book that's coming out in August of this year, titled Fierce Self-Compassion. And she makes a really good case for how culturally, we have really misunderstood compassion, that it's not just, it's not just being with, in other words, it's not just about comforting, reassuring, soothing, validating. There's a whole other side to compassion, which is um, the action side, the action in the world, protecting, providing, motivating. And at this time in our, in human history, where we have so many systemic problems and we cannot sit quietly by, you know, we must act. How do we act? You know, so in my view, what's really necessary to address some of these global, many global problems that we have is, we, is, is to motivate ourselves with compassion, but to motivate ourselves with fierce compassion, you know, to be able to say no when we need to say no, to be able to say yes when we are, when we're gonna take care of, you know, provide for ourselves and for others, and also to, to do things that are difficult And this is all the province of, of, we might say, uh, fierce compassion or the yang of compassion. So to think of compassion as yin and yang is is really, really um, important. Um, Yeah, so um, let's see how much time we have. Uh, Hmm. Yeah, um, people often wonder how does it work? How does self-compassion work? And I think um, there are really three main neurophysiological mechanisms. Um, There are certainly lots of psychological, psychological mechanisms such as a decrease in shame and an increase in secure attachment. But physiologically, it's closely associated with less fear less fear. And stress, especially chronic stress, is a state of chronic fear. So lower sympathetic arousal, less fear. But it's also associated with higher parasympathetic activity, which is more safety. And you remember I said before that the emotion regulation strategy is care and connection. It's actually through the vagus nerve, which is calming. But the vagus nerve is also associated with, safety in connection. So self-compassion works by decreasing fear, but, but increasing safety. And the brilliant Paul Gilbert right there in the UK has been talking about this for two decades and he makes such a beautiful case for it along with Stephen Porges and others. But we also know in the brain that self-compassion increases activity in the, in the frontal lobe in the executive functioning area and down-regulates the amygdala or the threat response. So we can actually see in the brain uh, the mechanisms by which this happens. But what's really key to understand is that um, most psychological suffering is associated with an overactive threat system. And compassion is the opposite. Compassion downregulates the threat system and allows our immune system to function better, allow our relationships to function better, allow our thinking to function better. Basically, the reason, the, f- the physiological foundation for this broad array of improvements in psychological well-being is, is this shift in, in physiological function. I, you might be interested to hear in the last two months, there were five articles that came out on COVID. <laughs> One was in Hong Kong and found that people who are high in um, self-compassion are less afraid of COVID. And then there was a study in Iran that said that, that self-compassionate people who were less afraid, they also washed their hands more and they wore masks more better self-protection by people who are less afraid. This was in Iran. And there was a study in Israel done with women who during this pandemic have to give birth and their feelings of fear or acceptance of the situation of childbirth and found that people who are high in self-compassion had less fear of childbirth. There was also a study in Spain that found that um, uh, people who practice self-compassion during the pandemic through this isolation phase had less anxiety, less depression, and less stress. But what they, what they but they also looked at people who were um, practicing meditation, just meditation, and it was all kinds of meditation, different types, TM, mindfulness, meditation alone did not decrease the emotional distress associated with um with isolation from the pandemic it was the self-compassion aspect that decreased uh these negative impacts so meditation alone you know sometimes we sit in meditation and we we're not generating the warmth or the 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 good will toward ourselves that we actually need to be less afraid and less chronically stressed. And then there was also a study in um, Austria in which they taught people self-compassion over 14 days. Um, and um, they found during the pandemic where people are having all kinds of bad habits, drinking too much, eating too much, that those people did less stress eating. The people who learned self-compassion did less stress eating during the pandemic. So take home message. We're all locked down right now. This is not easy for any of us. We are social animals. We need to connect, we need each other. But if we cannot connect with others, we can still connect with ourselves. We can still be really kind to ourselves and activate the sense of warmth that we desperately need in order to um, function well as human beings. All right, so I'm gonna um, just say two more things and then I'd like to offer you uh, a little a brief practice and maybe we can then have a, a little chat together. Um, so one of the questions that people have is can self-compassion be learned? Well, certainly the MSC program has shown and there've been like eight uh, randomized control trials that yes, you can learn self-compassion directly in a self-compassion training. However, you can also learn self-compassion as the um, Oxford Mindfulness Center has made very clear through MBSR and through mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Increases in mindfulness are very commonly associated with increases in self-compassion. But you can also learn self-compassion by getting a dog. You know, owning a dog is gonna increase your self-compassion level. Practicing yoga, walking in nature, you know, nature bathing, Um, psychotherapy. You know, improvements in psychotherapy are almost always, when it's measured, associated with increases in self-compassion. When you are compassionate toward others, probably you start liking yourself better and you become more compassionate toward yourself. And uh, a very recent study just came out a couple of weeks ago is watching people being self compassionate, watching people being kind to themselves increases our capacity to be kind to ourselves. And I think all of us know somebody, I, people, I certainly do, people who just care for themselves in a really beautiful way. And when I think about them, I'm more likely to care for myself in a beautiful way, you know. So what you need to know is that self-compassion can be learned so many different ways, not necessarily with mental training. You know, behavioral practice is also a profound way of learning. And then, um, but say you're you talk to somebody after this talk and they say, "Okay, I know what self-compassion is. I get it's well researched." That's all good. How can I be more self-compassionate? Well, you can do that little exercise that we did together with soothing touch and soft gaze and gentle vocalizations, but the really the quintessential self-compassion question is what do I need? What do I need? This is a beautiful question. You know, how often do people say to us what do you need, you know? And it's actually not just what do you need, but what can I do for you, (laughs) you know? Self-compassion. Compassion Compassion is is feeling and seeing the needs of others, but also the wish and the effort to do something about it. So, but the, the first question is, if we're feeling compassionate towards somebody else, is what do you need? If we're feeling compassionate toward ourselves, the question is what do I need? what do I need? Problem is when we're feeling uh, like emotionally overwhelmed, we can't answer that question very well. We don't know what we need. So then we got to break it down a little. So here are some things you can ask yourself, you know, more specific questions uh, like, what do I need? And that is, what do I need to feel safe Right now? What do I need to feel safe? You know, do I need to, like, quit that job? Do I need to say no? Do I need to sleep more? What do I need? Do I need t- a cup of tea? Do I need to pet the dog? What do I need to feel safe? What do I need to be comforted, to be soothed? What do I need to protect myself? You know, this is a really important fierce compassion question. Sometimes we are not safe and we need to be protected. What do I need to protect, to provide, or to motivate myself? Maybe to do something difficult, to do your taxes. What does it take to motivate you? If you wanna do your taxes, you gotta motivate yourself with kindness or it's, it's less likely to happen, you know? <laughs> and sometimes the nicest thing you can say to yourself, you're gonna have a big penalty if you don't do your taxes, you know? <laughs> and yeah, so. How can I be more self-compassion? Ask, what do I need? Or, as I said before, how would I treat a friend in the same situation? Or ask yourself, how do I care for myself already? How do I care for myself already? Because when we suffer, we are not very caring. We just sit around and we ruminate and we, mm, we're not good to ourselves. But if you usually dance or sing or talk to a friend or walk in nature, if you do that, when you're suffering, that is when self-care becomes self-compassion because it's in response to suffering. And this is actually pretty rare, but it can become a habit, okay? So uh, we have, uh, let me, why don't we do what's called a self-compassion break together? Maybe it's only five minutes. And then uh, maybe take a comment or two and then we'll close. So the self-compassion break um, is the most um, popular informal practice of the eight week mindful self-compassion training program. And it's based on the three components of self-compassion that Kristin identified back in 2003. And um, so if you uh, feel inclined, you can um, get comfortable and close your eyes. Maybe we'll do this for um, eight minutes. Let's say it's an eight-minute reflection. And I'd like you to uh, think about a problem you're having in your life right now. So maybe, you're, maybe you uh, have a financial problem or relationship problem, work problem, health problem. Maybe you're suffering because of a personal identity that you have and you're being mistreated. Think of a problem in your life, but please not a huge one. In other words, like a three or two on a scale of one to 10. And when you have one in mind, please allow yourself to uh, enter into it And uh, perhaps visualizing any people that are there or a setting or words that were shared. Mostly I'd like you to um, feel in your body what this problem feels like. How does it feel to, to have a human body and also to have this problem? What's it like? And now I'd also like you, if you don't mind, to find where where in particular in your body you can feel it the most. Maybe it's in your throat, or your head, or your chest, or your stomach. Where is this distress manifest? Now see, in good mindful form, if you can make a lot of room for it, if you can allow the experience to be in your body. Perhaps validating that it's difficult, maybe by saying, oh, this is tough. This is, this is not easy for me. And also allowing it to be there, validating making space and doing this because you know that this is part of the human experience. This is part of being alive, what you're feeling right now. That others in the same situation would feel just like this. That in fact, you are not alone, even though it may feel like you're alone. So that's the common humanity part, noticing what it feels like to open up in this way to your, to your, common human experience. And then finally, taking your dear hand and just putting it wherever you like on your body, perhaps over the part of your body that's so generously holding the distress, or putting it over your heart if your heart is hurting. Perhaps you feel some emotional struggle. Just placing your hand there and feeling the gentle touch and the warmth. Noticing how that feels. And then imagining that you have a dear friend who might, who could have been or could be in the same situation. What would you say to your friend right now? Say your friend finds themselves in the same dilemma. From what would you say to your friend heart to heart, you know, just out of kindness, what would you say to your friend? And so you know where this is going now with your hand on your heart or some other place. Just allowing those same words to be whispered into your own ear. Allowing those same words of kindness to roll through your body, to roll through your mind. Not expecting anything. You don't have to feel anything. You don't have to feel good. Maybe you don't even feel good. Doesn't matter. Just giving yourself this blessing the blessing of kindness in touch, in words. And noticing what that's like for you. Okay, and before you open your eyes, just to review, there were three components. First was mindfulness, being aware of what we were experiencing while we were experiencing it in a spacious, loving way, validating way. Second was connecting with the rest of humanity. That This is how it feels sometimes. And third, kindness knowing that you can practice any of these elements or all of them together anytime night or day whenever you need it and before you open your eyes just just for this moment allowing yourself to feel just as you feel right now allowing yourself to feel just like this allowing this practice to have been just as it was, no different, not better or worse, allowing the practice to have been just like this. And if only for this one moment, if only for just now, allowing yourself, to be just as you are, exactly as you are in this moment, just like this, just like this. And then when it feels right to you to slowly open your eyes, yeah so i'm just so grateful to everyone for having uh spent this hour together i hope that it was interesting or helpful in some way um i would um yeah we just have two more minutes um perhaps if you would be willing uh if you could write in the chat if you feel like it um something that you might have experienced uh, during that um, practice. And uh, as always, exactly what it was, it doesn't need to be positive, negative, neutral, it can be anything, just the way it was for you. Peace, opening up, gentle, allowing warmth little bit of fear. Thank you for that. That's good. Mm-hmm. Some lightning. Connected. Yeah, so that person got the common humanity part. Somebody got a headache. Yeah, you know, so we need to be really patient with ourselves with compassion. Heartache. Oh, that's so common. There's a saying, love reveals everything unlike itself. When we turn toward ourselves with kindness, we often experience some heartache. Very true. Allowing unpleasant feelings, yeah. Some gratitude, strong sensations in the stomach, then becoming warm, yeah. Okay, so I hope everybody was reading all these things as I was because you can see just the vast array of experiences that can happen when we practice self-compassion. Sometimes we feel good, sometimes we feel bad, sometimes we feel nothing at all doesn't matter. What self-compassion is, is training in goodwill. And when we do that, it stirs up the pot. Things come up. But when they come up, they're actually leaving us. So not to worry, not to worry when that happens. But take really good care of your heart. Know that the goal and the means to get there are the same. We want to, when we practice self-compassion, we want to be compassionate about being self-compassion, about practicing self-compassion. Maybe I should stop there. What do you think, Ruth? Right on time. <laughs> Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Right on time.